Let's pray together as we begin our class today. Our Lord, we would be good. We would be the best instruments in the hands of the Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. Use this material today to teach us more of what that means, what it looks like, why it's so important. We pray in the name of the great Counselor, the wonderful Counselor, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So we're in Paul David Tripp's Outstanding Primer. It is the introduction to biblical counseling instruments in the Redeemer's hands. And I'm quoting a lot from that book, not because I don't want you to get it and just follow what I'm saying, because I want you to get the book and read what Paul Tripp developed so well in that volume. And we're in chapter 12, The Process of Speaking the Truth in Love. And remember where we are now, we are dealing in the sections on love that we've covered and to know. Now we're in the section on speak, and then we'll come to do. Two texts for the time for our class today. The first powerful one, 2 Samuel chapter 12. David has, of course, sinned. He has sinned against Bathsheba uh, in adultery, and he has sinned against her husband Uriah and being an accomplice to his murder. And now Nathan the prophet confronts David. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. And now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who would come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who'd come to him. And then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Wow, what a powerful statement about what exhortation is or rebuke or admonition. And then Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 15, which really this text, this text is what this whole chapter is about. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 15. But speaking the truth in love, which is literally it's truthing it in love, not just not just saying it, but doing it. But speaking the truth, doing the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which is it equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So we're really, we're really not just talking in this class about, about speaking the truth in love, although that is the main topic that's here, but we're also, we're also speaking about the fact each part doing its work, each part doing its work the way it should, which is being an instrument in the Redeemer's hands. All right, here's your handout, and then let's go through this, and I'll make some notes along the way. I want to add some of my own illustrations from counseling and how it's done. So 
you can, this is what Paul Tripp writes, page 221, you can't have a relationship without some kind of confrontation. Are we trying to get people to do what pleases us? Or are we confronting them as ambassadors? And I would really prefer to use the language here better as God's instruments, because an ambassador is an official role that's given to a, a minister of the gospel when, when he's preaching. But at any rate, a God's instruments, using God's word to lead them to repentance. People who approach life this way are ready to serve as God's instruments of change. Now here he's talking here about the counselor. Okay, people who approach life this way, I'm God's instrument using God's word to lead people to repentance. Those who approach life this way are ready to serve as God's instruments of change. They see beyond their own agenda and are motivated by his. That's a, that's a great statement about, if you will, the, the drive to be a biblical counselor, to be an, an instrument in the hands of the Redeemer. Now, we begin with A here, understanding the steps of the confrontation process. And there are four of them, the steps in the confrontation process. Number one is consideration. Consideration. What does God want the person you are counseling to see? Now, at this point, let me mention the, the second volume that you want to read. For those of you who are, are studying biblical counselors, you want to grow as a biblical counselor, certainly the primer is Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands by Paul David Tripp. But the second volume, which you will want to read, is by David Paulison, Seeing with New Eyes. And that's really what this is about, how we should be looking at this world and the issues that we're counseling people about. Um, and if you wanted a third volume for this, your, your, your first top three books in biblical counseling, Ed Welch's book, Dr. Ed Welch's book, When, when People Are Big and God is Small, would be the third volume. Anyway, consideration. What does the person, what does God want? the person you're counseling to see. What does God want the person to see? You're God's instrument. Quoting Dr. Tripp, the question to ask yourself is, what does this person need to see about himself, God, others, life, truth, change, that he does not see? And how can I help him see it? Our goal is not to communicate a list of offenses, but to help people see themselves. Our goal is to encourage people to look at their behavior and examine their hearts with biblical eyes. That, that's the goal. Now, there's five questions that can help people see what God wants them to see. Let me, let me give you these and then uh, a rather typical kind of biblical counseling situation. Number one, first question, help people see what God wants them to see is ask, what was going on? So, for example, someone comes to you, a male or a female, we had a big blow-up, okay, that, that's what was going on. We had a big blow-up, that's the first question. Then second, what were you thinking or feeling as it was going on? Now, now, now what that does is it should get people's eyes off of the situation and onto examining their own hearts. I I was I was exhausted from a hard day at work. I was angry because somebody cut me off on the road. I I was I was upset to the point of wanting to just 
put my fist through the door because of what my boss said to me, whatever it would be. What were you thinking or feeling as this was going on? Get them behind, get them in back of what was going on and, and what's inside of them. And that should get people's eyes off of the situation and should get them thinking about their own hearts. Remember that, as Paul Tripp puts it, people are incessant interpreters whose interpretations precede and shape their actions. And um, we, what we need to do is turn their interpretation into God's interpretation. Their interpretation is, I blew my stack because I had a bad day at the office. What we want them to see is what God says about why they really blew their stack. Okay, so what were you thinking or feeling as it was going on? Question number three, what did you do in response? Behavior is shaped by our heart's response to a situation. I have let anger and bitterness build up in me, all right? That's giving you a window on the heart. What did you do in response? I've, I've, I got angry, I got bitter, and, I was, and it just built up. Make people see that their behavior was not forced by the situation or by others, but by the attitude of their heart to the situation or the person. I've been angry with her. I've been bitter with her. I've had it with her. Okay, that's that. If people don't see things, quoting Trip, see things at this level, they may decide to do some things differently, but in their hearts, they will still be convinced that most change needs to take place outside of them. If she were only, if he were only, if we didn't, that kind of a thing. That change will be temporary because it's not rooted in the heart. Now, the fourth question is, well, you've got to be careful with this because it deals with motivation when you ask why. And, and there's always a lot of motivations in what we do. But nevertheless, why did you do this? Why did you do it? What were you seeking to accomplish? Um, the second question Okay, what were you thinking or feeling as it was going on? Um, or the first question here, why did you do it? That covers thoughts. Okay, what were you thinking about? The second one covers motives. What were you seeking to accomplish? Those are your motives. Um, why have you become angry or bitter? There you go. See, there's the question you asked. Why have you become angry or bitter? Now, in asking this question... You are, we are teaching that the heart is always serving something. Human life is one big treasure hunt, as Paul Tripp puts it so well. We all have things that are valuable to us, acceptance, possessions, achievement, certain lifestyle, God's glory, vengeance, love, independence, health. In some ways, again, quoting Tripp, we all seek to get these things from our situations and our relationships. Our behavior always expresses these motives or idols of the heart. For example, a craving for attention, a craving for acceptance, a craving for affirmation. And it's not wrong to accept. It's not wrong to affirm. We should do that. But when people live for that, that, that that's their heart's desire in everything, as it was with Haman in the book of Esther. Well, then, then see, our behavior 
was going to express the attitude of our heart. Okay? Lasting change, quoting Tripp, takes place when people are not only shocked by the evil in their world, but by the degree to which they have lived as glory thieves, demanding for themselves what belongs only to the Lord. Give to the Lord the glory that is due to his name. Cease from man whose breath is in his nostrils. The most basic question in all personal ministry is for whose glory are you living? And that ends up being for ourselves or for someone else. And then you ask, again, these are questions that you're, that you're asking um, to, to, to people to, so that, that they, they can see things the way God sees them. What was going on? What were you thinking or feeling as it was going on? What did you do in response? Why did you do it? What were you seeking to accomplish? Having good questions. But what was the result? And, and here Tripp uses um, a relatively common biblical uh, a, a biblical metaphor we need to help people examine the fruit in their lives and see the connection between their harvest and the thoughts and motives of their hearts. Now, what, what he's getting at, and this is, this is from the book of Galatians, chapter 6 and verse 7, and, and, and you're familiar with, with the text and the dynamic that's here. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Okay, that, that's the basic principle of sowing and the harvest and reaping. Now, now, what you want to do is sow to the Spirit so that you develop the fruit of the Spirit as over against sowing to the flesh, uh, which brings about bad things. And that you read about in Galatians chapter 5. Now, the works, verse 19, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies. And it's interesting how, how the sexual sins are all linked together with these other sins of divisiveness and rivalries. These things usually go together. As I warn you, as I warn you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. If the mark, this is the mark of your life, what you, you're always sowing in these fields of this wickedness, then, then you're not a Christian. You're not a genuine believer in Christ. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires, which basically means you don't want to sow these things that lead to the works of the flesh. Rather, you want to sow by your reading the Word of God, by prayer, by asking God, by disciplining yourself, you, you're asking God that he give the fruit of the Spirit in your life. And we need to show people the results of either works of the flesh or, uh, or, or, or the fruit of the Spirit. We need to help people, right, Strip, examine the fruit in their lives and see the connection between their harvest and the thoughts and motives of their hearts. So if enmity, strife, fits of anger are coming up, we need to show 
that this comes from a heart of, of anger and animosity and so on. And we need to be used by God to give people two things. One, a harvest mentality, in which people understand that every day they plant seeds and harvest fruit from the seeds they planted, either good seeds or evil seeds. An investment mentality is the second thing that we need to, to show people. So you're telling people you need to have a harvest mentality. You need to have an investment mentality, which acknowledges Christ's teaching that our lives are shaped by the treasure which we invest. Our goal is that people would own their harvest and get a good return on their investments. Uh, see, actions from the heart, hatred or love, animosity or peace, actions from the heart sow seeds that bring the fruit of the flesh or the spirit, okay? So as the heart overflows with these things, that's what's going to affect what is around us. And if it's an evil heart, it's going to be changed into a new heart. Acquiring accurate personal insight is usually a process. It may not take place in one sitting, in fact, it probably won't, in one sitting or even in your presence, What's important is that people be willing to be part of this process of learning about our hearts and the fruits of behaviors that come from our hearts. Now, this next quotation from Tripp is powerful. You are incarnating the presence of the Messiah who gives sight to those in spiritual darkness. Remember, we're talking about what does God want the person to see. This is consideration. Seeing is the beginning of the change process. It is the beginning of grief, not only for the things I've experienced, but for the ways I have stolen glory that belongs to God and demanded to be the center of my world and others' worlds as well. This kind of insight smashes our idols and exposes the self-serving arguments and lies that have hidden that idolatry for too long. The confrontation process begins with giving people insight not only into their behavior, but into the system of worship that directs it, this step, writes Tripp, is essential and cannot be rushed. Now, what we're dealing with, folks, is a battle of two kingdoms. It's basically, is Jesus going to be Lord or am I going to be Lord? That's really what it comes down to. And, of course, if you're going to be the Lord, then that's your idol, is yourself. Now, get to the point with people that they, that they acknowledge, I have made an idol of my wealth. I've made an idol of my contentment. I've made an idol of my peace and security. I've made an, an idol of my fame, whatever it would be, or idols. But, but, but in most cases, you're going to see one major one uh, that, 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 that stands out. Okay, But get people to that point. I have a desire to be loved. I have a desire to control. Well, we, we have a desire to be loved because we're made in God's image, and we love and we want to be loved. And because we're made in God's image, we will control. But when that becomes dominant, you'll do anything out of a desire to be loved. You'll do anything so that you control a situation. That's an idol. And that has to be, that has to be dashed. And the confrontation process 
is what gets you to that person's idol. Now, the second is confession, all right? We've got consideration. Second is confession. What does God want the person to admit and confess? And writing, quoting Tripp, the problem is that sinners find confession difficult. That puts it mildly. We all have ways to take ourselves off the hook, as Adam and Eve did. They covered themselves with fig leaves. When the light of truth shines on us, we instinctively, again, think Adam and Eve, deny, recast history, explain away, accuse, blame, or blame shift, defend, argue, rationalize, or, again, like Adam and Eve, we hide. And yet confession is essential to the change process. People, and, and when, folks, when people confess and it's sin, they don't apologize for it. That gives a reason for it. When you ask forgiveness, when you sin, you ask forgiveness of someone. Forgiveness is a promise. I won't bring this up to you, to the Lord, to myself, uh, or to, to, any, to anybody else, okay? Promise is the thumb. I won't bring this up to you. I won't bring it up to the Lord. I won't bring it up to myself. I won't bring it up to anybody else. I'm in a counseling situation. You may want to discuss those things. But forgiveness, don't, don't swim in those waters anymore. Um, and, and, of course, you read this in James 5 and verse 16. Confess your transgressions one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And we should call people, again, quoting Tripp, but this is so true, we should call people to confession that is not, not weakened by buts and if only. I know my sin, but you should know my wife. You should know my husband. Well, this is exactly what Adam said. The woman whom you gave me, she made me do it. And don't let people use buts and if, if onlys. We sin because we sin. And we also need to encourage them to identify people who've been affected by their sins and seek their forgiveness. Did you ask, I blew up at my workmate today. Did you ask him to forgive you? Did you ask her to forgive you? Yeah, that's right. When you sin, folks, this is what the gospel's about. We sin, and when we come for the first time to Christ, we're justified. We're in a courtroom, and it's guilty, 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 guilty. And in Christ, we are declared not guilty. We are declared, we're given righteousness, and our sins are forgiven. Glorious, that's justification. It big forgiveness of all of our sins, and Christ's righteousness imputed to it, us received by grace through faith alone. But, but there's daily sins, right? And with the Lord's prayer, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. This is Jesus washing our feet of the sin that we're involved in in this life. And if you've sinned against the Lord in your thoughts, you ask forgiveness of the Lord. But if you've sinned against someone else, your sin has come out in the arena of human history, well, then you need to ask forgiveness there. All right? Uh, we should always do this, folks, dealing with our own hearts as well. We, too, are sinners. Brothers and sisters, if a man be overtaken in a fault, or a woman, you who are spiritual, you're full of the Holy Spirit, that's the meaning of spiritual, you are spiritual, restore such a one. If the word is to mend a rip net, restore such a one in a spirit of meekness, Meekness is self-control under pressure. 
considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. You're angry with the person, you're grieved with the person. Meekness is, I don't give in to that. I'm going to be self-controlled under pressure and, and deal with them about that. Okay, so confession. Commitment is number three. So you have consideration, confession, commitment to what new ways of living is God calling them. Consideration and confession, quoting Tripp, make up the put-off aspect of the confrontation process. And this is kind of a basic thing in biblical counsel. In Ephesians 4, 22 to 24, the Apostle Paul talks about putting off the old man, and he gives specifics, and putting on the new man. And so it's not a head trip. You're, you're actually doing something. In conversion, you are, in, in, in conversion, you come to Christ, you're given his righteousness, and and you're forgiven of your sins when we are in, in a daily state of repentance, well, we're always putting off ourselves and we're putting on Christ. You're not window shopping, right? You're not just looking out there at a pretty garment. You're putting it on. You're putting on the righteousness Christ would have you have. So that that's commitment, okay? Commitment is the first step of the put-on phase of repentance, and some questions to ask here might include, where is God specifically calling this person to radical new ways of living and thinking in which it's not self on the throne, but Christ on the throne? What biblical desires would God want to control his or her heart? That's the fruit of the Spirit. You, you want the, the heart to be controlled by love and joy and peace and patience and kindness. That's, that's what you want flowing from the heart. In what ways is God calling him or her to love and serve others? All right, so, so this, is, this is service. This is the service aspect of, of, of repentance. What steps of restitution is God calling him or her to make? If somebody's stolen something, you need to return it, and sometimes you have to even pay more for that. What new habits should he or she insert into his or her daily routines? And is he or she really committed to these things? Brothers and sisters, if the person you're counseling is not really committed to do these things, you give them homework and they come back the next week and they haven't done it and you try to continue, you're wasting your time. And I've had cases where I've had to say to people, not a lot, but one case with a family that drove an hour and a half from Ossining to come all the way down to Franklin Square, an hour and a half drive and not the best traffic, and they wanted to come to this Pastor Shishko, the biblical counselor, had a good meeting with them, and uh, they listened, they were very attentive. Uh, they they were, we were to meet the next week, gave them homework, and I told them, I said, you don't do the homework, and we're not going to go any further with this. Next week they came, Let's talk about the homework. We didn't do it. He said, that's it. I'm not, not doing a counseling session. They were so peeved. Never saw them again after that, that they'd driven all this time. But folks, if people are not committed to, to do what the Word of God says, you call them to repentance, you pray for them, but, but there's really, really nothing more you can do. The old line is, how many, how many biblical counselors does it take to change a light bulb? Only one if the light bulb is willing.
So, so don't soften God's call for concrete commitments of heart or life. And and the way you can do this, folks, it's not finger pointing, okay? As you talk with them, let's consider this together. You say to the person, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Put yourself in his or her shoes and the challenges he or she is facing. Okay, so relate that. But ask yourself, how would I change in, in this situation? How would I make new commitments? What would the new commitments be and why? Okay, so that's the difference between secular counseling where you're the professional behind the desk and you're the shrink and you're trying to tell people all the things to do as you die in the middle. No, no, no. We're in this together. And if I were in your situation, this is the way I would I would mortify the sin of anger or work to do it, that kind of a thing. Okay, And then the last one is change. How should these new commitments be applied to daily living? There you go. Change has not taken place until change has taken place. Um, and if commitment focuses on the what, what, change focuses on the how. How do we do it? And so you say, okay, let's have a game plan for our next session. Something like this. I want you two to sit down together. And you're not going to raise your voice. You're going to, but but what you're going to do is talk things out, make a list of these things that grieve you, and pray for the fruit of the spirit, which is self-control. Where you need to ask forgiveness, ask for forgiveness, and talk about how you can better implement these changes in your home, beginning, you say, with your own heart. Remember, we're to pluck beams out of our own eyes before we try to pluck splinters out of others. Now, how do you confront people biblically? That, that's the second part of this. If we're understanding the steps in the confrontation process, the next is, how do you confront biblically? Quoting Tripp, we need to constantly scour Scripture for the theology and methodology of ministry it reveals and especially considering the ways Christ dealt with others. And you can study 2 Samuel 12, 1-7. I mean, it was not, not, it was not a direct approach. Uh, Nathan told a story. David knew it was about, he didn't know it was about himself, but he would see himself there. But he got angry as that story was told uh, about this man that stole this one fellow's ewe lamb. And David was righteously incensed. And then Nathan said, you're the man, okay? So there's an example of the indirect approach dealing with people. But especially consider the ways Christ dealt with others. A helpful thing to do, underline or highlight in yellow the questions Jesus asked. Will you also go away? Well, that's one of the most penetrating ones that's given in the scriptures. Um, so, so, so those kinds of things. Anyway, um, we're not advocating, quoting Tripp, a reading the riot act form of confrontation where the receiver is silent and the confronter lays out a list of offenses. Now note the important word in this next sentence. In scripture, the more common style of confrontation is interaction. The confronter stands alongside the person, helping him to see, telling stories, asking questions, drawing out answers, and then calling for a response. Um, 
So uh, I can't. That that word interaction is so important. Again, you're not giving people answers to something. You will be doing that, but you're you're listening to them. You're putting yourself in their shoes. You're relating this to things you learned in your life or in history, and all of these different things. And and uh, and remember, the Lord is at work in these sessions. How do you do this to interact? Well, number one, use two-way communications. Two, use similes and metaphors. Simile is a, is a statement which you have like or as. Um, the sun rising in the morning is is as a, is a is, that's really more of a metaphor. If I say the sun is like the sun of righteousness, that's a simile. A metaphor is the sun of righteousness rises with healing in his wings. It's an implied comparison between the, the sun and Jesus. But anyway, yeah, use two-way communication. Use similes and metaphors that will relate to the person's life. Jesus, right? the kingdom of heaven is like. It's like leaven. It's like a mustard seed. It's like a man searching for uh, the pearl of great price. Okay, that, 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 that you use. So people can relate to these things. Uh, and then also use number three, self-confronting statements that help the person make the connection between your examples and his or her own life. The simple question, do you see what I'm getting at? Can you relate this to your life? Okay, that, that's you're getting him to look at his own heart. And here you summarize all that God wants to teach the person and call him to respond in heartfelt commitment. Make sure issues are clear. Don't assume the person's agreement. Stop and ask for specific commitments. Okay, are you are you ready to do this? Are you willing to do this? Communicate the general principles of Scripture in a way that is concretely applicable to this particular person so that he walks away not only with a clear sense of conviction but a clear sense of calling as well. If you, by the Spirit, by the Holy Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. What does that mean? How, how do you do this by the Spirit? How do you put to death the deeds of the body? What does live mean? It actually means fullness of blessing. It, 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 it's like l'chaim, when the, the Jewish toast, l'chaim, to life. And, and, and people don't know what that means by nature. The Spirit uses the Word of God. You use the Word of God to slay that temptation as Jesus did. It is written, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And so, so give specifics. And remember that God will bring these things to your mind. You go to a counseling session and and don't go and, and say, well, all right, I've got a I've got, I've got a forty five minute counseling session. Here's my forty five minutes. I wrote it down. No, 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 no. Listen to the person. Pray that the Lord give you insight. You you might ask the question, May I be sure? Let me be sure I understand what you're saying. Is this what you're getting at? Am I am I on the same wavelength with you? You're 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 and that helps you to empathize with the person, sympathize with the person, gives you a moment to kind of reflect on it. But but remember, it's interaction. Now, if the person that we are speaking, and incidentally, remember, God's at work with both of you in a counseling session. I love to pray this, Lord. I have this counseling session with Mister and Missus So and So. 
Lord, work in them, but work in me as well, that I would grow in grace. Okay. Now, if the person we're speaking with is stubborn, rebellious, and proud, that person is not going to engage in such interactive communication. It ain't going to happen. He or she must hear what God's will is and be exhorted to respond. You begin with interaction, engaging a person in heartfelt self-examination. But if the person is stiff-necked, hard-hearted, refuses to listen and consider, then, folks, you've got to move to declaration. Thus says the Lord, therefore you've got to repent. And say, people are just, I'm not going to change. This is the way I, this is the way I was, this is the way I was brought up. The only way I've known. Say, well, then you have to relearn it. And, and you need to stop what you're doing with this. You've got to realize how your heart is like a vol volcano erupting and the lava that's coming out of your mouth or your hands or whatever is, is harming people that you need to pray that God change that heart and give you a heart no more of lava, but of love, okay? So, so thus says the Lord, therefore repent. Now, these final quotations, and then we're done. And this again, this is from Paul Tripp, uh, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands, uh, pages 221 to 237, the process of speaking the truth in love. It, it is a sign of God's covenant faithfulness when he sends people to help us see and repent. He heals our spiritual blindness most often in everyday moments of growing awareness and progressive conviction. He uses husbands and wives, brothers and sisters, fathers and mothers, elders and deacons, neighbors and friends to do his kingdom work. He calls us wherever we are to pursue a life of faith. And that's a great encouragement. We're all in this thing together, okay? And so we're working together to help people see, believe, and repent. Quoting Tripp, It's tragic when we are too busy to see the need around us. It's terrible when we see wrong going on, but trim the truth because loving, humble rebuke takes us beyond the borders of our safe lives and casual relationships. These responses, listen carefully, are the fruit of self-love that has replaced a love for God. That's what we learned last week in the material from Leviticus. The ministry of loving, humble, biblical truth-speaking always begins with examining our own hearts. When Paul tells Timothy, take heed to yourself and to your teaching, for in so doing you will save both yourself and those who hear you. Well, you could apply it this way. Take heed to yourself and to your counseling, for in so doing you will counsel both yourself and those who hear you. All right, so that's the basic principle, again, plucking beams out of our own eyes rather than going at the splitters in someone else's eyes. And the last quotation from Tripp, we've been called to participate in the most important activity in the universe. Wow, what is the work of Christ? It's to make all things, to sum up all things in Christ, who is the head. And you get to participate in this as instruments in the Redeemer's hands. God is taking rebellious, self-absorbed people 
and changing them into those who pursue holiness for the sake of his glory, even as they suffer in a fallen world. To this end, he's called us to call sinners to repentance, incarnating his presence and his work. That's what it's all about. So there's the material from chapter 12 in Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands, the process of speaking the truth in love. Let's pray together. And now, our Lord, we ask that you will make us instruments in your hands. May we know the kinds of questions to ask people. May we always do that in love. We pray that we will know how to graciously confront people. We pray that we will know how to direct people by your grace. And our Lord, we pray again in doing this, that we will be the instruments of Jesus, the wonderful Counselor, Amen.